Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. I'm Ian Stasikevich, a contributing writer for American Cinematographer magazine. When people think of Die Hard, they think of Bruce Willis's beleaguered New York cop John McClane, or Alan Rickman's charismatic villain Hans Gruber. They think of the iconic Fox Plaza in Century City, or Beethoven's Ode to Joy. They think of action, suspense, and they take note of the film's impeccable craft. Die Hard was directed by John McTiernan, whose intention was to break the mold of Hollywood action films by not only depicting the hero as a fallible everyman, but by also telling the story in a sophisticated new way. This is where Dutch cinematographer Jan de Bont ASC comes in. In Europe, Debont was known for his stylish camel work on films such as Turkish Delight and The Fourth Man for director Paul Verhoeven. In fact, it was the latter film that brought Debont to McTiernan's attention. A story detailing the visual effects camera work of Die Hard, which was supervised by Richard Edland ASC, appeared in the December 1988 issue of American Cinematographer magazine. More recently, I spoke with Debont via Skype and asked him to share his stories about the making of the film, starting with his earliest conversations with McTiernan. Here's what he had to say. Well, actually, we met before on another movie that I don't think ever happened, and we got to talk a little bit about styles of, of, of movie making and how Europeans are quite different. And he was looking for something new, and and then um, not that long, not that much later, he got uh, we, we we got to meet again. He called me for this for Die Hard, and. And then we really started to talk about how, you know, because we both liked this, this type of movies and, and thrillers, but we never, we, neither one of us liked the way they were normally done. They were so done by the rules. And you cannot do anything exciting or original if you just keep following the rules. The result all, is always that all those movies start to look the same, ultimately. And and we didn't want that, especially not with this movie, because uh, we felt both that the genre was on on a on a dead end. We really wanted to put some new life into it. And he had seen the Fourth Man. This is basically a type of style where a DP, cinematographer, cameraman can be a lot more proactive in the, finding the style and in finding the right style at the right moment and realizing that. You know, you should never get too stuck to anything you like, meaning that that once you have it, don't get so totally set with such rules because it seems it might not work at all for us. You have to be extremely flexible, and that flexibility is basically what you see on the screen. It's like we never know in advance exactly what the scene will be look like, how it will be choreographed, what will be exactly happening, but we can influence it to it to a degree that the camera takes on more or less the point of view of a viewer in the theater. I always remember that Holland when I started working there is that what would I like to see right now at this particular moment in this scene watching that same movie? And that uh, whatever you call that style, I don't think there's a real name for it, but it's, it is something where 
you can actually, as a cinematographer, participate in the moment of the sequence. And what is dramatic? Dramatic. What do you want to see? And what do you don't want to see? You know, what what don't you think is necessary to show? And what can you skip? As I understand it, the production of American studio films in the 1980s, particularly action films, was governed by a kind of anti-auteur dogma. How did you and McTiernan circumvent these rules? Well, at the time the movie was made, the difference between European filmmaking, where, where the creative talents involved are extremely appreciated doing the things they do, we are non-conformists, and, 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 and American way of, of filmmaking was very much in the conformist style, and that is really like, you know already what's going to happen, you can all predict exactly what shots will be made, how it will be done, and that's not one needed John wanted that, because he liked auteur films, he liked not only the French style, and also the English and the German, there was all coming up, you know, in, in a new kind of a free-floating cinema style, and and that is, is very exciting, and it makes it really hard for production designers and for editors to deal with that, because if the camera takes and moves suddenly to the right or to the left, or or you do shots that, that end up on not on a close-up of the actor, but end up actually on something much better suited for the, for the continuation of the story, they think it's a mistake. And it's the same with set design. Set designs were basically uh, done in a, in a very conventional way, you build them in the studio or outside, whatever, doesn't matter. And then the cinematographer starts lighting the set. And that's not how I saw the movie ever being made. Basically, I wanted to build in all the lights that I was going to need for the movie into the set. And I was saying, I can do that. Or I can, it's not budgeted for this. So, well, you might not be budgeted, but actually you will save a lot of money on the lighting department and maybe you can get some of that money from the lighting department back into your budget because it will make everything uh, look more real, number one. And it also will make things move faster because I like to be able to, at any given time, on any given scene, to be able to shoot a film in every direction at any given moment. And you can only do that if the lights that are lighting your set are actually part of the set. In this movie particularly, all the lights, almost in every interior, are built into the set. And that is like a unique thing. The same with editing. And, you know, thank God we had Frank Curiosity, who has worked with Paul Verhoeven, and, and, and I've worked with Paul many movies. And he understood what we were trying to do, and he understood the flexibility, and and that if the camera moves and shakes a little bumpy, whatever, that was not a that therefore didn't make the take the take a bad take. That he might make the take a lot more interesting, and and so for that in that regard, uh, it, it ended up all very positive. How long did you have to prepare for the film? Yeah, I think it was six weeks. It was pretty normal at the time. But, I mean, I, the most time I needed was to discuss with Jack Degovia about all this built-in light sets and where they had to be, what type, and how they had to be wired, and lighting a big set uh, always takes a lot of time. But now to do that in, in pre-production and try to imagine how all the action will take place and all the dialogue and the scenes, and the, that needed an enormous amount of planning, you know, because it's like, you know, come to a regular movie set. Movie sets are not lit in a way that the camera can always turn around and look around, you know, 360 at any given moment. And, I mean, obviously the crew has cannot be there, but but they have to be behind the camera at all given time. So we had uh, very few people on the set apart from the cast, which is also good for actors because being surrounded by 
30, 40, 50 crew members on the set as an actor, it's not a very inspiring sight. You know, you want to be talking to the other actor. So I'd like to keep the, the room completely available to the actors and don't tell them, oh, you can only go from this mark to that mark or that mark. They basically, you know, could go whatever they wanted to. And John liked that, you know, and it's a, it's a really great thing that to give actors some much freedom. And I just want to reiterate that when we talk about things that you could or couldn't do in American films around that time, we're, we're still talking about big budget Hollywood films. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one director whose action movies I always really much liked. That was John Frankenheimer. He also was like a, a little bit of a wild man, and he did whatever he wanted to do. And, and I, he was a very inspiring director for me. And, and there's, there are no rules. And you should never start with a bunch of rules when you start shooting any type of movie. Just you have to be able to get, let the scenes inspire you and, and then try to figure out what is the best way to tell that story. And if you say, now it has to be done, and a shot, and a counter, a counter shot, and a wide shot, and a close-up, and that's it. But that is actually what they have been doing for years, and, and we want, didn't want that. Did you find that as you shot the film, it began to dictate its own style? Very much so. I, 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 I absolutely um, agree with that. It's a, a, right from the beginning of the movie, you see this four-story tall building, and that's the character in the movie. So we had to pay as much attention to the building that you always see a big part of the building in any scene. There's nothing to me so irritating in the movie is if it's confusing. Uh, what the hell are they now? I always want people to remember, oh, I'm on this floor because I can see outside. I, the exterior is always a big part of the scenes in the movie. I always want to get that involved so that you are reminded as if you are nonstop, you're actually on a high floor in a building in the middle of the city. So all those demands of the story helped us to really find that style. And as we also had that building, which was only partially completed, many floors, there was nothing in it. And um, we had to film scenes, and then I started telling Jack the Coffee, Jack, I need a lot of fluorescent lights in those days belong to the art department and not the film department. So I always, when I needed to light a set, I could always, oh, this has to come, that has to come from the art department budget because it's, it's fixtures of the building. <laughs> so well, just give me the, the rough fixtures and then and we'll hang them on wires and we put them on the floor, we, we put them vertical. And ultimately, that really worked. And, and that too, for instance, helped to create the style of the movie. Again, you know, when you see this, this, this kind of empty floor with a lot of construction material inside, but basically completely bare and no lighting in it. And then with, with, with those additional elements of fluorescence all over, it not only created mystery, it also created a lot of depth to it and kind of a mysterious character that is like that, that floor became its own character. And every type, every scene almost had its own demands on the film. And John and I have supported that to really use that. I keep using that and, 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 and let it flare and let it go wrong and let uh, lights flicker if they don't work well. It's all fine. So, so you're right. I mean, the, the, the situation the, of the sequences of filming, of the locations itself, and the actors helped us to really be influenced by the needs of the movie, the needs of the scenes, if it was needed. There's an expressive, Caligari-esque, almost film noir quality to the photography. 
Diehard producer Joel Silver described it as exaggerated realism. Would do you agree with that description? Well, I don't think it's exaggerated. It's more a much more a pro proactive realism and, and a sped up realism in the degree that everything is is done on a tempo that is much higher than in real life. I'm not talking about the cutting. I'm not talking about uh, faster. I'm talking about all the things you would normally see on, let's say, on that set in two hours, you know, by walking around and wondering, you see in three minutes. That, to me, is, is, is also a, a way of keeping the audience always on their toe because they never know what the camera is going to do next or what the actor is going to do next and, and where they are going to go. But coming back for a second on the film noir style and, and Caligari, that is also inside the set. When he had to build in those lights, and I gave him, of course, specifically the directions how to do it and which lights, I also built in the shadows because you cannot make shadows after the fact. I mean, you cannot paint them in, although there are a few scenes where the shadow is painted in because you couldn't get it any other way. I'm not going to tell you that. But there are, and generally, there's all kinds of things that were really built in and that I could change when I needed it. So if there's a walk through the hallways and they walk under those lights, and normally those lights are always like open, flat light. But in this case, we had all grids built in that I could change around easy. A striped light, I mean, it could be diagonal, it could be little square blocks, and also the light level that I could change easy. Because we needed different drama settings so that not every scene always looks the same in every situation. The lights go off. I mean, the lights actually do go off, and the drama and the shadows become stronger. And that was the way, the way to do that was is, is by turning off all the fill light that's also built into the set and only relied the lighting units that had those grids in front that it was not necessarily intentional to, to remind it of film noir, but it increases the drama, it increases the tension, it's a suspense, and, and it worked very much for the movie. A scene that comes to mind is the first face-to-face confrontation between Hans Gruber and John McClane, just in the way that the lighting and the camera work are in concert with the action and the acting. What I tried to achieve in, in that scene is like being a cinematographer, it is quite often more important to take light away than adding light. Because anything that's lit up nearby takes attention away of the characters and, and attention away of the actors. And I really wanted the viewer to only focus on what's going on in the minds of those two individuals and only have a, a, a little, like a, a tiny bit of an idea where they are so that they're not in, a, in the front of a black screen. But And, and the, the, the background always has to play a part, otherwise it is, becomes like a, like a stage play. Basically, it's a directing by means of the lighting. You direct the actors and help the viewer to really focus on one thing. I mean, this comes from painting directly. You know, it's like Rembrandt. You know, I used to live right behind the Rex Museum in Amsterdam, and the way he paints and this is, the, is the, the the power of his painting is basically his lighting is kind of a fantasy lighting. It never is realistic. It seems to come from one angle, but then the person next to it might have completely different light on his face. And what he does in his paintings, he he lights only the things that he wants the viewer to see on the on the face of the, the individuals. And everything else, he paints it very dark. I learned a lot from that. I mean, that's like I looked at this painting so many times in my life, and it's, it's always called painting with light. And I'm much rather taking away the light. Let's talk about film speed and the way that it, it impacted your work. 
Now we have digital cameras today that can go safely up to like ISO 3200 <laughs> and beyond, but that wasn't anywhere near the case for Die Hard. The film was basically 100 ASA, no? I mean, and outside it was 75, I think, with the filtration for daylight. And not only that, anamorphic lenses, they demand light. I mean, they are sharpest around four, five, six. And of course, we could never get to that light level anywhere because it would need a massive amount of light. But it also, I would never be able to see the, the city outside the, uh, the windows. And that was always a key thing. So I like we make sure that you always realize something like that can happen on the 34th floor of a building in the middle of the city and nobody is aware of it. So it was hard finding practical light. I mean, it increased the amount of little lights dramatically. I mean, and especially fluorescence. And the light level of a city through a window at best was 1.1 or even less. And I had two lenses that were 1.1. But the focus of those lenses is only good for close-ups. It's not very good for wide shots. But at the same time, I thought it's much more important to see and feel that you're surrounded by the city. And and what I have a little bit out of focus because of the low light level and the lesser quality of this particular lens than, than not seeing anything. And we're talking about the scenes that were filmed at night on location at Fox Plaza. That is right. And I felt that the lighting of the building had to be brought down to a level that was so low that you could combine the shot from exterior and interior. So you could be inside filming it and then see the city outside. And that meant, of course, that the light level on the interior has to be brought by almost 200% now, which is really low light level. And, and as you know, it's, it's never great for quality in those days. I also understand that you flash the film in camera to speed it up slightly. Yeah, yeah. Later we called it Panaflash. Uh, but in Holland, they had to sign something similar for another movie for Paul Verhoeven, and also that had low light level, and also we didn't have the money to get much many lights. It worked, but it wasn't really, you know, it was a very primitively made thing. And then Panaflash made those uh, for us, and it's a little box, a rectangular box that fits to get more of the glances, and there's a tiny little light source in the back on top that you can regulate. And it's a light source that of uh, the color temperature of which did not change if the level went up and down. But by adding this little bit of flashing on camera, which you kind of could see through the lens, it really filled in the background a little bit. Because if there's big places of sky out there that is just black, it's really annoying to me. It looks ugly and it is distracting. So by filling in a little bit with flash, like maybe sometimes 10%, 15%, when it's really dark, I think 20% was the highest I think we ever went. It really helps to create like a little bit of a moving grain, like a presence that suggests that there's actually some exposure there. And that worked really well. We use those a lot of times in the building. You talk about always being aware of a world outside and, and the passage of time. I'm guessing it's easier when you're on location, but yeah. how did you accomplish this on the Nakatomi Atrium set? at the Fox backlot. Yeah, and it was gigantic. It's a three-story high atrium and had to go around the corner. It's always hard to go around the corner with any sacrama because you feel the angles will be so bleak that it looks like a totally false perspective. But the way we fixed that is it's basically one gigantic sacrama that's done at sunset that we could light in different ways. 
in the front and in the back. We could make it uh, in the front warmer and make it look more like a sunset and really copy the real sunset. And at night we had I don't know, thousands of little lights. I mean, like they, they almost looked like Christmas lights, diodes, that could blink on and off very gently so that you felt there was a life outside the window. And if the activity was higher in the scene, then I could increase the, the tempo a little bit of the lights flicking. If it was the tempo was a lot slower and the action was more dramatic, and I slowed it way down so you wouldn't be distracted. It, it was extremely effective. McTiernan has said that one of the things that you brought to the film was a tolerance for photographic flaws. Yeah, and, and, and I'm all for that. Because it creates more reality into a scene. I mean... That's also one of the reasons I picked those particular Panavision lenses, the C and the E series, because they could not deal with any light flares and they would create like strange, strange effects. And I like that because those light flares creates a lot of extra activity and reality that I would never be able to do in any other way. It created another level of motion. And if the camera was moving, pretty quickly, all those twirling police lights and ambulance lights and, and street lights and helicopter lights and even the third floor where Bruce Willis is trying to escape with all the fluorescence, the sets under construction. Those lights are flaring the lens all the time. And that creates a little bit of a mystery. And it creates like what I call an organized chaos. I like when things look chaotic, but at the same time, they're totally controlled. And I really put those lights exactly always where I wanted them. If you think that those flares are accidental flares, they're only accidental in a technical way, but not in a creative way. So if I wanted the flare of an actor's face or just below it that it would isolate a face, I could do exactly that. To me, that makes us a full use of the qualities of a lens. And this also helped to determine uh, for a lot the style of the movie, you know. And also, I like handheld cameras. I like cameras on a little chip arm. I like cameras on, on everything. But I hate it when those dolly moves are really smooth. And nobody walks like that. Nobody sees it like that. And it also it dampens the speed and energy of the scene dramatically if, you, if that is all under, under control. I mean, I like handheld, not because I like a shaky camera, far from that. But I like it when you just censor something at Even if I had to use cam um, a dolly or so, and, uh, because the camera was too big or too heavy for whatever reason, then I still made sure that that camera was on a jib arm that could move by itself, or that I could move, and it was always like a little bit of motion, not like distractingly so, but it always gives like a presence and, and a presence of, of the filmmakers there. You mentioned before that these Panavision anamorphic lenses performed better at like a four or a five, six, but you ended up shooting the entire film at close to or wide open. Yeah, yeah. Was this because you were working with lower light levels or because you wanted to take advantage of the photographic flaws present in these lenses at those lower stops? I think both. I love those lenses and the cook base and the Mothics, wide open, they show better blacks. The, the E lenses are a little crisper, but they are a little washed out in the black. So you use the lens that is best for whatever scene you're doing. Like for instance, in the E lenses, I tended to use for the scenes with 
Bruce running through the building where he's holded by fluorescent. And that works perfect for that because that makes the lights bloom more. The cook lenses are used when the characters were involved, especially in close-up, because those lenses are best in close-up focus, too. And they are, have a huge velvety quality that is gorgeous for close-up scenes. But when it comes to wider shots, e-lenses are a little crisper, and they tend to really create that sense of detail by washed-out blacks. And this is, all, of course, not talking about gigantic changes here, but in a situation like this where the lights are always in the scene and where the lights are always visible, it works really well because the lights interact with the lens. The lights do change too. I mean, the fluorescent, if you're in front of it and you move with the camera and the actor moves in front of it, it starts blooming around the actor in different ways. You create some really dramatic shots and dramatic effects that really makes the scene more intense or more suspenseful and more mysterious. So so it is a little bit of casting what, what kind of lenses you use. And, and of course, and then we had the two lenses that were super fast for when we really needed to see some of the exterior. For instance, when Bruce thinks that the, the police is arriving on the truck, there's no exposure there, of course. And even with the one one lens wide open and slightly lower speed, like 20 frames or so, to get a little bit more exposure out of it, it's still pretty dark. But it feels real. It's like what it should look like in real life. But uh, I chose those lenses as I knew in advance that we had a lot of big night exteriors, so the light levels would always be very limited. But when I say low light levels, I mean, you have to understand this is... 75 or 100 ASA, there's still a lot of light, you know, like if you see the building lit up from the outside, I mean, there's eight generators working at the same time for that scene and so many hidden lights and, and, and a lot of xenon lights. So that has more to do with, with the slow film than anything else. And I want to confirm that the Cook-based anamorphic lenses, they were the C-series anamorphics. That's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the 1.4 lenses, did you also get those from Panavision? Yeah, they came actually from England. There were spherical lenses with an anamorphic element. It works great for for um, really, you know, like non-anamorphic films. But once you put the anamorphic element in it, then a lot of distortion starts to take place. But if you would anamorphize it later, it wouldn't match very well. I did test with that. It didn't really work. But it was in Europe. We didn't have many anamorphic lenses. So we found a great lens and then found a separate anamorphic element that could be from France or from Germany, that you could put in front. I mean, Technoscope had at one point those anamorphic lenses that were basically two parts, a lens part and an anamorphic part, and you put them together, and you could create your own stack of lenses. All, all you had to do was try to find out how much light the element took away, and, and then generally it took away stop or stop and a half. So if you have a really fast lens, you know, 0.9, but then with a, a anamorphic element, it became like... 1.4, so like a stop down. It looks like the lenses you're talking about are the ones that Joe Dunton made for Stanley Kubrick to film Barry Lyndon with, uh, which would make them a T.7. So with the anamorphic... Almost it became 1.1 or 1.4, which is still two stops faster than the normal 2.3 or 2.5 lens you could work with on the regular lens. No? And if you had the two lenses... Uh, I'm guessing that they were a 50 and a 35. Yeah, I have to say the 50 I used most. You know, that was like really a brilliant lens. It was also the sharpest, uh, that I remember. How many cameras did you normally have on set? 
I think for Weckl we had five cameras, but we didn't always use five cameras. You know, we had sometimes two or three, and sometimes only one. Especially when I'm following Bruce uh, running through the building, I basically run behind him. And sometimes it's Steadicam, sometimes it's handheld, and sometimes it's on a dotting tip. I'm and sometimes I'm just sitting in an office chair with wheels on it that they run behind him. So there's many different styles used in the scene. So it's a mixture that is actually, if you look at it closely, and I was surprised how little you can see the differences that it integrates so well with each other. Now, you were the A camera operator, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, in Europe, the the, the cinematographer is also the operator. Because they are the spokesman and the interpreter for the directors. Directors in generally in Europe are not very technical, but they are very interested in the style. And so it is pretty great to really be able to, as a cinematographer, to actually really operate a camera and, and get a sense what an actor really thinks and does like. Because in those days, there were not many monitors. Now you can really see... You know, like the, now you have all those high-def monitors and you can see the actors pretty well, but no director could see very well what the performances were. They could kind of guess, but the operators were actually the only one who could say that because I, he could see that the look on the face that was not convincing. I was always very open about it. Now you have to do it again. It's really, and then he trusted me. And then for, for second camera, we had a couple of operators that were really good, Michael Scott and a couple of other guys that I really like. And... And they understood that, especially with the movement cameras, it's hard to explain. How do you explain to the camera, do not hesitate to be a little, a little rough here, but also this has to be really smooth. And, and Because if there's too much movement, it distracts from the acting. But creating a presence on the set that is, could be the audience's point of view, that I think is great. There seems to be a specific rhythm to the camera movement. Like each shot is a three-beat measure where you'll start with one frame, then pan with the action or dialogue, and then pan to another frame. Sometimes there'll be a cut and then another three beat shot picking up the camera move from another perspective. Did you and McTiernan plan to do it this way or was this one of those things that was asserted by the film? I, th I think it's a combination of multiple things. It all happens in the first couple of days of shooting when you find out the, you know, what is right for the movie and what it really needs. And then when we started doing the shots, you could sense it's, it's not an, or an, an arbitrary panic on left to one to the, it becomes a storytelling device. And not only that, it places the actor always in that story. When there's big things happening, I want to tell the audience, this actor was really there. These were not stuntmen. This was really Bruce in this scene and that scene. Because quite often it's like you do close-ups on the main talent and the rest are doubles. And since this movie, that has changed a lot, because when they see Bruce and Alan Rickman, too, doing all those things, it is more exciting to know that these were the real people, you know? I mean, of course, we still, for some of the super dangerous stunts and wider shots, we had to use them because the studio wouldn't let us. But all the regular fire and explosion stuff, that is, that most actors can do that. And it is great because... When you're in the middle of a, of, of a scene and something explodes behind you, you really see that on the actor. It's a real reaction. This is how they react to a real explosion or to a real uh, shooting or to a real all the glass breaking. That's all him. And that is really great because, you know, without putting him in danger, of course, but it, it creates an, a level of a proactive and an involved reality that makes it really exciting, you know, and you always have to have the set lit and ready to go all the time, fully 360. 
which is not a great thing for the first AD and for the crew because where the hell are they going to hide? For the sound, where is the sound going to hide? I mean, there was always issues with where to hide everyone. And it's kind of funny because there are so many times you see the whole room in, in one shot and, and moving around and rhythm and turning around. And that is that makes it real for me. I've seen a photo of you standing on the edge of a dolly platform called the Ramp of Death. Yeah, the Ramp of Death. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. Why did you call it that? And what kinds of shots was it used for? There's a scene in which Bruce goes up that fountain and I wanted to be really close to him so that you could get a sense of the chaotic world around him. And, and because it was up a step, up a, a little wall, they had to build a ramp for the dolly. And on the dolly, it had a jib arm. So it makes the camera totally floatable and movable. And myself walking next to it, the weight was so bad, those poor guys pushing that thing up the hill, they had ropes on it to hold it in place at the end. And if one person would let go, it would be crashing, you know, coming down with high speed down the floor into a wall. And that happened once during rehearsal, and that's when they started calling it the ramp of death. They have some pictures of it, I think, because I was standing on the, on the chair of that dolly with, the, with the, the crane really pretty high up in the air, but they also, in the shot, starts really a low level, in you know, on eye level with Bruce. And it's, it's you know, in, in, right now you have all those those amazing telescopic cranes, but of course those things didn't exist in those days. And I didn't want to change the style of the movie because the shot was right in the middle of a big energetic sequence and and, and that had to fit in there too in the same style. In this film, shallow depth of field seems to work in two different ways. For the interiors, you're able to shift focus from one plane to the next, but still get a sense of your location. For the exteriors, it separates the characters from each other in the background. Well, inside, my approach was to really make the characters claustrophobically caught inside the building. There was no escaping. Everything was always closed. And you see, always aware of the walls. There's like no way out. And exterior, there was freedom a little bit. So that's why I used outside lenses with a deeper focus, but also more space around that. I want to make sure that you got the opposite effect of inside, where there's always walls in the side, there's always doors, there's always corners. And outside, I had to have the feeling that's like, escaping a little bit for a second from the claustrophobic situation inside the building itself. I remember on Hans for October, also with John, that a lot of that was inside the boat. It was like super claustrophobic. And I wanted to also make that feel and make that come across as super claustrophobic where walls are not were, were never taken out. I never wanted to have more space than the actual space of a submarine. And that's a little bit like this too. I don't think Jack Chikovia, the production designer, he had, oh, you can take this wall out and that wall out. And for now, I don't need any wall out because I don't want to be behind the wall if there's a person in front. That doesn't feel real. I know as a viewer that they know this. What the hell are we now suddenly? We're filming through an invisible wall or I don't like those point of views that are from an impossible position. I always want to be able to see it from a real perspective and, and without any any tricks. And if, if I want to see more, I use use mirrors or use a snorkel lens that you can put in between the wall and the person sitting on a desk in front of the wall. You still can get a good close-up of this guy or this woman. Let's talk about your approach to filming the building exteriors around Fox Plaza and the action there, which gets more and more chaotic as the film progresses. <laughs> and it's a tall building. And it also means, of course, all the buildings around it, too, because to film a tall building, 
you you automatically have to be further back at times, and then you see all the other buildings. But but xenon lights just came out, and I used those as set decorating element lighting the buildings specifically. But I mean, police always bring slides, and and I think this those, those extra lights were also like tools of chaos too because all those beams going different direction and there's motion there and there's people moving them and, and there's people running in front and, and to light the stuff it was fun for me because you can play with all the things you learn in your life you know with those big lights and the big flares it was great because you could see through a car window inside a car you, you could see and see other lights behind it and see a truck surviving with flashing lights and that sequence too and I, I want to mention how great the sound effects are because in the whole movie I think it has great sound effects and they deservedly were nominated for that but it's great to see that the post-production comes together in the same way as the style of the film is and this all for, in, in some magical reason this all came together for this movie in, in a really great way it seems to me that you almost couldn't have filmed the plaza exteriors in a more traditional, controlled way because it would have undermined the chaos and the action. The thing is also that the camera is always inside the group of people who created Panic. And I really don't like a situation where you become God's point of view and you're just seeing it from a distance. And and suddenly all that activity is almost looks like inactive because it is not big enough to be noticed in a wider shot. So I felt like even although... The shots are wider. There's always something close in the foreground. In all the shots, there's always a car in the foreground or an actor, but there's a big scale behind it. There's like the whole building behind Reggie, the cop who's who's looking up and, and knowing that somewhere on that 40th floor, there's his friend. And, and, and having all those flexibility, not to having to worry about any of those flares, and actually creating those flares quite often, and seeing people in... in backlight and and then you don't have to really worry about everything always has to be perfectly lit and it's just it's, it is helps to really create an atmosphere of uh, hyper tension and uh, hyper chaos and and that is kind of cool did you have more cameras to capture the larger action set pieces and i'm thinking specifically of the armored tank sequence and the helicopter flybys yeah actually there were there was on that particular scene for the helicopter going through the city, there was, I think, seven or eight cameras, and some of them were unmanned because the, 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 it was too dangerous to have anybody there. And others were inside the helicopters. So There's actually three helicopters had cameras inside, plus a had a, a vis-a-vision camera inside. And then there were a whole bunch of cameras inside the building, below the building, looking up with, uh, over the shoulders of actors. And then there were on the top of the building when all the people stream out and see the, the helicopters arrive. I mean, that was only for one day, but there was, I think, a total of 22 or 24. But, I mean, some of them are just secondary cameras, but the shots all end up in a movie. That is so good. That is all, looking at it again the other day, I was like, oh, wow, everything is in there. <laughs> and I want to say something about that in regards to John. and. He loves technology, which is already fantastic as a DP, that he understands it. And he understands that certain things you can only do once and try to get it all in one take. It's pretty amazing. And he understood where the cameras had to be. And I know from Frank Uriosity, the editor, that he was able to use all the better, the best parts of each shot. That was fantastic. And it looks like night. It doesn't look like it is, you know, lit up by hundreds of arc lights, which we didn't have. But we use some Moscow lights, but then they're so well hidden that you don't see the source. 
it looks like it's you know lit the building lit itself a little bit. Really, really exciting. How did you light the top of the building uh, with the catwalks and the helicopter pad? Yeah, that's that. Uh, that was actually the biggest challenge. Now, how to light a rooftop that's totally flat and that's meant to have is a helicopter pad. But you, obviously, you cannot put any lights on that. And and I knew we had to see it from so many different angles. I mean, uh, then then I got this idea. You know, like if we cannot light it from the top or from the side, then we have to light it from the bottom. So we built this square of. Fluorescence, they actually they're just laying on the floor, but it looks like a perfect square. And we used, I, got, I don't know how many there are, but there was probably like, no, I would think 20 in every, so maybe 80 of them. But because it's a pretty big area, and had those light the whole scene. So if you can see it, that looks like it's part of the set design. That's how a helicopter pad looks like at night because they have to see where they're landing. So also, it looks really great from the air. I mean, when I looked at the scene the other day, and and you see it from the helicopter's point of view in the air, it's like it looks actually really cool, really real. And all of the sun was lit by fluorescence and lights on the balconies that were all around the balcony. Had at the top five floors had little balconies on the corner, and that had lights on shooting upward, so you could see the top five stories very clearly. On the bottom of the building. All around, there was a series of xenon 4K lights, and they're really powerful, and they were just coming out with those lights, and that was the only way to light up four stories. But it worked because it looks like, again, you know, you think it's like uh, way over the top, but if you look at it from a distance, it looks totally real. It looks like, well, I guess this building is lit by the designers of the building, and they like that building to be seen, but it looks real. It doesn't look like phony film lighting. There was, of course, also a big issue because, as we found out, that those xenon lights in those days, you couldn't aim straight up for a long time because then it would blow the bulbs. I mean, they were meant to be horizontal. <laughs> and that's something you don't know until you, till you, you actually start doing it. And we had a huge problem with endlessly replacing those very expensive xenon bulbs. And once you start doing it, you cannot suddenly change it because there's nothing powerful enough to duplicate it. When it came time for the color grade, what kinds of adjustments were you making to the image? It, I mean, color grading is extremely important in those days because it's a chemical process, and they're basically the only sort of filters that you can use to really change the color and variations of those filters. Not only that, um, once that is developed, then the developer and the speed of developing completely determines the color of your print. So you have to really be very aware of what you're doing and make sure that once you have a really good positive print that you really like from the original negative, that you then immediately make an into negative and into positive high quality. So to keep it as close as possible, because it will always change. And, and my experience in life is that no matter where you go, you can see a print in one theater and you can look at another print of the same movie somewhere else and it will look different. And sometimes it's the projection, sometimes it's the bulb that's too old, or sometimes it's too low a voltage on the projection. And sometimes it's just the grading hasn't been great, you know, but we were very lucky. And the things that, that was always so typical is that people tend, tend to make very light prints and they they always said it that they need a no no we don't have a lighter print it will that people won't be able to see it in 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 small towns because 
their projection equipment is old, and Konami can't do that. That's the whole point is this movie is a night movie. I mean, the print is pretty, what I remember seeing it, looking at it, is, is pretty much what what I imagined it to be, and I was amazed at it. I was like, wow, I see that look good, especially taken in consideration the equipment you had to work with, how big the sets were, and how difficult it is to work at night, and how many different cameras and different lenses you use, because every lens has also its own color issues. What is so amazing is that the lenses that Panavision has ultimately makes it possible to get such a, a great grading. And, and Because if the lenses are too different, it's almost impossible to get it right. There's a really great standalone diehard Blu-ray that's out there right now, and it contains a lot of information uh, about the making of the film, and it also uh, looks great, too. Uh, did you supervise that transfer? No, that transfer, no, no. I mean, later I started doing it, because I, I know how it gets screwed up so many times, and now I'm always involved in it. But there's a couple of shots that are so, uh, they're a little too light or so. It's always too light. But then generally, it felt like it looked pretty much what I remember it. I've deliberately saved this question for last. Uh, McTiernan said that as a cinematographer, you were very opinionated and that the two of you would terrorize the crew with your fights. But it was always within the context of the work and with mutual respect. How do you find the balance between advocating for what you felt was best for the film as its cinematographer and trusting your director's vision? The wording sounds a little strange to me because I would never say terrorize. Maybe it's in a funny way because the crew always started laughing when it happened. But I think it's more like we were both very passionate about it. And in films, you have very little time to discuss things. So you have to dare to speak out and, and not be afraid of it because, you know, 10, 20 minutes later, you're already on another shot. So we do have a lot of respect for each other. And you know what also happened quite often? We did it both ways, too. Because we both could be wrong. And ultimately, the only thing about the one has to be good for the movie. I like experimental lighting. I like uh, proactive camera work. I like the way a movie is filmed. That it is from a human being's point of view, not some mechanical uh, person or mechanical equipment. That I really like. And those things I will protect. But it also, those things are also the things that will help the movie and make the movie look more real. That I know from experience. And DPs in general have a lot more experience than directors in regards to the amount of movies they've worked on. So when it's just technical, I can convince them this is really better because I know if you don't do it, this might not look so good. If it's from a story point of view, then you accept it. But it's also, because we were always driving to the set together. So it was actually really extremely comfortable because he lived very close by. And then we said, talked about the scenes today at, at bed night and and it always worked out well and never got into any aggressive relationship. The good top directors, they're all passionate and they will fight for anything. And, 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 and sometimes you fight together and sometimes you fight individual and sometimes somebody else has an ID. And, and you have to be open to it. But you, what you cannot do is just let it go. Because if you let it go and just go with a, with a quick, you know, laugh, let's just do it that way. In the movie crew, you have to care about the product. You have to care about what the director wants. You have to care about how it looks. And you have to be a member of the team, you know. I really believe in that. And ultimately, you know, when the film is done, it's the director who gets the credit anyway. People always tend to remember, like, oh, they are fighting. But I don't think they're fighting. I think it's too 
passion people who have an idea about everything. And so does John, and so does I. And it's good for him because it's good that he has one who who can speak against him and change his mind if he thinks it's good, and vice versa too. I think it's a good way. And I think that's a good way to end the conversation. Jan, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, I mean, I took a whole bunch of memories came up. I'm looking at it. Oh, my God. And then, and then I also I realized, because I hadn't seen it in a long it's actually a really good movie. <laughs> that was Jan DeBont, ASC, talking about the making of the film Die Hard. Thanks for listening. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography. 